0: you would turn with me to Ephesians 5 and while you're finding Ephesians 5 you'll recall that um, this morning I decided to take a one Sunday pause from our usual preaching schedule just to make certain we're staying on track in pleasing the head of the church Jesus Christ and that is one of our goals is to try to avoid any sort of spiritual complacency and the time to address that is before it happens and so I was just direct this morning, we, we talked about how to ruin a local church. This coming Friday evening at our celebration banquet, that'll be a time of joy and thanksgiving to the Lord for all that He's done. But as we commented this morning, all together, we never want to presume upon the Lord. We want to be spiritually vigilant and watchful and alert as we continue down a path of ever maturing and ever seeking the Lord in humility. We're, we're to be those that are growing in the Lord. And this morning, just to kind of make sure we're being direct about this, I gave you six ways to ruin a local church. Avoid helping each other spiritually. Fail to listen to one another. Misuse your Christian freedom. Fail to guard your thoughts of one another. Gossip regularly as a sinful habit. And don't be concerned about the bigger mission of the church. And we're going to jump right in and do a few more The seventh way to ruin the local church, fail to guard your marriage. Fail to guard your marriage. Now we've turned to Ephesians 5, and this is a very familiar passage, but my ultimate reason may not be exactly what you're expecting. So let's just read Ephesians 5.22, some of the verses in here. 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He Himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And then verse 33 at the end of the chapter, "...nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." I'm not going to take time to fully unpack that whole passage, it's it's fairly easy to understand. But let me just generally say that what we see here is that married believers have three duties, or if I could put it this way, they have duties to three different entities. First, the married have a duty to one another, that's probably the most obvious here, the married have a duty to one another, that husbands are to humble themselves, to love their wives, versus... Just thinking about yourselves as your default, and that's the default of all men, is to think about ourselves, to, to marry for what we get. Instead, our wives are to be cherished, they're to be cared for, tended to. And if you wonder, am I doing this? There's a really simple way to know that. Just ask her, and she will tell you. Make her thrilled that she volunteered to spend her life with you. You, you don't lord authority over her. Husbands are never called to demand... From their wives be a leader by setting the tone spiritually be a listener by seeing your wife as as your greatest ally your greatest counselor and conversely wives are to humble themselves by respecting and being subject to their husbands and titus 2 commands wives to love their husbands to make certain that he feels cherished and loved at all times these are not difficult to understand and for both, for, for husbands and wives, you have a duty to each other to treasure and uphold your marriage. And that's, that's the only pathway to joy. There's no, there's no joy in bucking God's system of marriage. That you're talking and you're communicating, you're, you're worshiping God regularly in prayer and in the Word. You're obeying the Lord by being intimate together regularly and frequently as designed by God, commanded in First Corinthians 7 And so you clearly have a duty to one another. That's the obvious one. A little loftier than that, though. Second, you have a duty to Christ. You have a duty to Christ. You noticed in verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And for husbands, you're loving your wife not just as Christ loves the church, but also in submission to Christ. And that's the whole key to Christian marriage. That's everything right there. That when you're genuinely concerned about pleasing Christ, then your concern to please one another is is real, it's heavenly motivated, it's not worldly. Worldly love is doing things to get something in return. Heavenly love is doing things because God commanded them. This means sacrificially loving one another is an act of worship. And by the way, the opposite is true also. This also means that any refusal to obey the Scriptures in marriage is a refusal to worship Christ. A refusal to obey your true Master. And if together you'll view your marriage as a means to worshiping Christ, your motivation is so much higher, so much loftier, so much more heavenly. Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, was so concerned for the marriages in his church that he ended up writing a whole treatise on marriage. A a long series of essays concerning Christian marriage I quoted from it frequently when I preached through Song of Solomon some months ago. And I want to read to you something that Baxter wrote. It's, it's quite compelling. He said, Division with your spouse will pain and upset your whole life. Just as you do not wish to hurt your own self and are quick to care for your own wounds, so you should take notice of any break in the peace of your marriage and seek quickly to heal it. Fighting chills love Fighting makes your spouse undesirable to you in your mind. Wounding is separating. To be tied together through marital bonds while your hearts are estranged is to be tormented. To be inwardly adversaries while outwardly husband and wife turns your home and delight into a prison. Dissension between the husband and the wife disrupts the whole family life. They are like oxen unequally yoked. No work can be accomplished for all the striving with one another. And listen to this. It greatly makes you unfit for the worship of God. You are not able to pray together, nor to discuss heavenly things together, nor can you be mutual helpers to each other's souls. This is very true. Now, I said that there are duties to three entities. We've mentioned duty to one another, duty to Christ... I said that this message is about how to ruin the local church. We've listed one way to ruin the local church as failing to guard your marriage. And I told you we would go to this passage, but not for the reason that you might suspect. So let me work my way toward this third duty. In Scripture, proximity or location of a text matters. Where it's placed matters. I want you to notice what comes immediately before this classic passage on Christian marriage, it's an admonition about the gathered, worshiping body life of the church. Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is the context of us gathering together. Ephesians 5, 18-21 is talking about what we're doing right now at this very moment. And just how connected is this obvious reference to the worship gathering of the saints? How connected is it to the marriages represented in the church? Well, Paul says that in our worship gatherings, we are, verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then although your Bibles almost certainly place a heading or a break here, he goes right into verse 22. And you notice in your Bible, in verse 22, it says, wives, be subject. And you notice that that's italicized. Why is that? Because it's not there in the Greek. And the translators have supplied it for us as a way to to show the clear intention of the text that's usually very helpful in our English Bible translations. But I don't want you to lose the flavor or the dynamic of how closely related the worship gathering of the church and marriages are. Because this is how it goes. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And then the rest of the marriage section. You see how it's just connected directly at the hip. And so the married have a duty to one another. The married have a duty to Christ. The third duty or the third entity to which their duty lies is a duty to the church. The married have a duty to the church. Yes, Satan hates marriage because it's a picture of Christ and the church. And yes, dissension in the home makes the devil glad. But always in the context of disrupting kingdom work. That's his work. The devil is concerned with keeping the whole world. Disrupting your home is only a tool toward that bigger goal. And the disrupting of the ministry of the church is his primary target. Now, to be very clear, I know, and all of us here know, that marriages run into rough patches. And, and yes, the shepherds and the, the more mature believers at Grace were eager to help, were eager to disciple you in your marriage. But I do want you to consider this it's just a question to ask yourself. At what point will you as a husband or a wife simply surrender and obey the Lord? That's all there is to it. At what point do you simply surrender and obey the Lord? Husbands, to humble yourselves, to love your wives versus thinking about yourself, wives, to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, to make life peaceful and simple without constantly pushing back. In the New Testament, we see the example of Priscilla and Aquila. They're a married couple who... Devoted their lives to the church, to the gospel ministry. They were a major impact both in the cities of Corinth and Ephesus. They were heroic to the Apostle Paul as those who even risked their lives for him. They didn't have time for marital nonsense. They were tent makers by trade, hard workers for the gospel every other moment of their lives. And they are mentioned multiple times in the New Testament for very good reason. I'd like to make the case that marriages in the church have a duty to the church i'd like to give you five reasons that marriages in the church have a duty to the church the first reason the marriages in the church reflect the power of the gospel marriages reflect the power of the gospel or should i put it this way they ought to the gospel is the power of god and the salvation for all who believe the gospel is the life-changing Holy Spirit-empowered means by which the believer's heart is changed to having allegiance to myself, to allegiance to Christ. The Gospel is the message that you heard that transformed your lives so radically that the Bible says this. This is phenomenal, that God has written His law on your hearts. That's unfathomable. And one of the most obvious outworkings of this radical transformation ought to be in the realm of marriage. Marriage. In fact, just a little further back from our Ephesians 5 passage, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4.17, Therefore this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So marriages in the church ought to reflect the power of the gospel, that marriages are characterized by serving one another, by the deepest of loves, by a yearning and a learning of each other. Two people loving Christ by loving each other at all costs. It's the second reason marriages have a duty to the church. The marriages in the church create homes for the gospel. The marriages in the church create homes for the gospel. Your home is a tool for the gospel. Now, I I know that there's a difficult truth that a few in our midst are unequally yoked with unbelieving spouses. We understand that. We commend your faithfulness and your patience to trust the Lord. And I know one of the consequences of that situation is that it makes it almost impossible to use your home for any gathering of believers. We all understand that. But the Christian couple is in a marriage which ought to naturally lend itself to reaching out to the body of Christ, whether that's hosting a small group or, or having something less formal like simply having believers into your home but the marriage is characterized by strife and worldly selfishness. It makes that hospitality impossible. It shuts your home out. And on the flip side, a marriage characterized by obedience to the Lord, by humility, it makes the home naturally yearn to share that joy, doesn't it? And so the marriages in the church create homes for the gospel. It's the third reason marriages have a duty to the church. The marriages in the church reflect a rejection of worldly philosophy. The marriages reflect a rejection of worldly philosophy... The marriages in the church are one of the greatest tools for demonstrating that Christians are not of this world. That our marriages look nothing like the world system of selfishness and mixing gender roles all over the place. I mean, imagine reading Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 to a group of non-believers. They would throw rocks and stones. They become indignant. They have no clue what Christianity is about. And marriage reflects the fact that we're not of this world. The world encourages marriage as a means towards self-fulfillment. And when self-fulfillment isn't achieved, what happens? The marriage ends. The marriage of Christians, however, is totally different. It's a means to serve one another, to love sacrificially, to be one unit for a lifetime. And what does that mean? It it means that the, the atmosphere, the flavor of your marriage is a witness to the gospel and And that Christians do not do things the way the world does. That ought to be apparent. So fourth reason marriages have a duty to the church. The marriages in the church aid in sanctifying the whole church. The marriages in the church aid in sanctifying the whole church. I have the glorious privilege of preaching to you each Sunday. And one of the greatest mechanisms for really meditating on and driving the nails of a sermon more deeply into your heart is an out loud discussion of what was preached. That ought to happen in every home. And every marriage in this church represents a little miniature sermon-based Bible study where you're aiding and sanctifying one another. Every marriage provides a built-in accountability partner for our walks with Christ and that, that provides great aid in sanctifying the whole church. I'll give you one more reason marriages have a duty to the church and that is the marriages in the church reflect the reputation of the church. The marriages in the church reflect the reputation of the church. Imagine this. You've been telling your co-workers about Christ. You've even been getting close to some of them. You've been telling them about this great church you go to and really expounding upon your Christian life and you love your church and As you get close to some of these co-workers, you let it slip that your marriage is not what it ought to be. And eventually you say this to a non-believing co-worker that your marriage is in trouble. Now you've been telling them about Christ, you've been telling them about this great church you go to. What does that say about the church? What that says to that unbeliever is that apparently nothing life-changing is being said or taught or experienced at that church. Just another group of hypocrites all together on Sundays from the unbeliever's standpoint. So it reflects the reputation of the church. I had an email from a a dear brother and not a pastor at all, just somebody I've known over the years. And he knows of a church and he and his family eventually left it because they found there were so many failing marriages, so many divorces happening in the church that nobody was addressing, nobody was doing anything about. Nobody was dealing with it. And he said it just tainted the whole church and he couldn't, he couldn't be associated with a church that just let sin fester under the surface without being dealt with. So fail to guard your marriage, that's a great way to ruin the local church. There's an eighth way to ruin the local church. Consider yourself more important than others. Consider yourself more important than others. Now we go from one classic text to another. Turn with me to Philippians 2. We love these classic texts, but I think it's possible to be so familiar with certain Bible texts that perhaps the radical nature of what's being said might escape our notice. And Philippians 2 is one of those passages. Because Paul starts this section with what amounts to a set of theoretical questions meant to be ridiculous, meant to be preposterous. Philippians 2 verse 1 Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. It's as if he's asking, well, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation or comfort from the love of God, if you enjoy any fellowship with the Spirit of God, if you possess as a result of the gospel any affection, any compassion, and the obvious answer is, oh, yes. Yes. Yes, we have great encouragement in Christ. His love for us is boundless in His consolations. We have sweet fellowship because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're filled with affection. We're filled and overflowing with compassion. That's the power of the gospel. Of course we have this. Paul, er, he got them. He says, if. He has them on a hook. They would of course agree that they have these things. So this is an if-then statement. If all these things are true, and they are, then... And here's the radical part. Verse 2, Fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. That's radical. If everybody did that all the time, we're golden. Notice that Paul doesn't say humility of action, humility of mind. This starts with what you think about yourself and what you think about others. That in your thoughts, others are more important than yourself. I'm going to give you a simple definition of humility. Humility is having a proper estimation of yourself. Having the proper estimation of yourself. Not too high, not too low. Let me give you six considerations concerning humility. Things for you to think about. The first one is humility is heavenly clothing. Humility is heavenly clothing. It, it makes you appear and act godly and in heavenly terms. It dresses you in heavenly behavior Humility is acknowledging your position as the created one and God's position as the creator. Humility is heavenly clothing. It's, it's what we put on. It's another consideration. Humility is your truest nobility. It's your truest nobility. We live in a culture that tells you to stand up for your own respect, stand up for your own dignity. You want honor? You want respect? You want nobility? As a Christian... The only real pathway is humility, to be the servant of all, not to give off the impression of your own importance. In fact, Jesus has set up His coming kingdom such that the greatest servants in this life are the greatest leaders in the next. That's the system. Humility is your truest nobility. There's a third consideration. Humility is a sign of genuine salvation. It's a sign of genuine salvation. The root of all sin is pride, And when you're repenting of sin, when you're forsaking sin, when you're hating sin, the very definition of that is hating pride in all its forms and taking on instead humility. It is evidence of genuine salvation. There's a fourth consideration. Humility is the root of all obedience. It's the root of all obedience to God's Word. I would challenge any of us to find one Scripture in the law of Christ contained in the New Testament that's not rooted in humility. In the second half of Ephesians, which is the response to the salvation doctrine of Ephesians 1-3, through Paul begins in Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, verse 2, with all humility. And then you have the rest of the sanctification section in chapter 5 and chapter 6. All obedience to the word of God is rooted in humility, which means the opposite is true, that all disobedience is rooted in pride, isn't it? All of it. Here's a fifth consideration. This is so encouraging. Humility is the answer to every sin you struggle with. Humility is the answer to every sin. If you will successfully answer the question, what pride do I have that keeps me returning to this sin over and over again? If you can answer that question and identify it with specificity, and if you'll ponder on and pray through and meditate about that specific pride, you know what it'll become? It'll become like chewing on aluminum foil. It'll be like biting sand. It'll be like swallowing horrible medicine that becomes very familiar to you. And the more that pride repulses you, the more you'll be able to resist that sin. Why? Because you're finally beginning to see sin the way God sees sin. Humility is the answer to every sin you struggle with. One more consideration. Humility is the hallmark of Christ's likeness. It is the hallmark. If you're pursuing Christ-likeness, then you are pursuing humility. And this is, of course, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt by the rest of this section of Philippians 2 in which Paul shows Christ and His condescension to earth as a man. All churches have problems just like any family, but humility, considering others as more important than yourselves, that pretty much solves all of them. Now, why is that? Well, humility lowers expectations, And when your expectations are low enough, it's really hard to be disappointed, isn't it? That's a very simple truth. Let me give you a ninth way to ruin the local church. Create chaos and unnecessary burdens for leaders. Create chaos and unnecessary burdens for leaders. I'd like to take a little time on this. This seems to be the crux of many church problems, the relationship between sheep and shepherds, shepherds to sheep. I'd like to go to three easy to understand texts, all texts you're familiar with that give a quick lesson on how to be a church member that doesn't create chaos and unnecessary burdens. Turn with me first to James chapter one. James chapter one, I'll bet some of you have these verses memorized. I know we switched to the legacy standard Bible and that messed up everybody's scripture memory, but you memorize in whatever version you like. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There's very legitimate applications to our lives in general here that we're to be characterized by those actions in verse 19, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But the bigger context of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger is found in verse 21 and verse 22. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in gentleness, here it is, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but become doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. The context of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger the context is the preaching of God's Word. And boy, can that cause anger. I've been preaching long enough to say something from the Word of God and have somebody snuff and get up and storm out and slam the door in the back. I've seen that happen. Like, I don't know what to say to that. Well, bye. You know, I, but, oh, preaching can cause anger, can't it? It's a difficult thing to hear something preached you don't understand or even worse, vehemently disagree with. And sometimes we don't know what we don't know and that can cause great discomfort, can cause even anger. Now obviously, listeners to the Word of God ought to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who compared what was preached by the Apostle Paul with the Word of God. But James here is warning against this instant response of anger without taking time to listen, to consider some of you were here a few years back when we did a long series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we waded into this very slowly and in tremendous detail because those subjects can cause an immediate emotional response, and that's spiritually dangerous. Why is that spiritually dangerous? Because that emotional immediate response now negates any ability to think critically, to objectively examine biblical arguments. And what happens when an emotional response takes over? Sanctification, any spiritual benefit in the Lord is now lost. James even says so in verse twenty the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Your ability to hear the word is shut down, your your ears are closed. A number of years ago, early on in my time at Grace in our membership class, one potential member in all innocence said this I need to go to a church where I agree with everything that's preached. And to a certain extent, I understand that. But if I could say in all love, that's another way of saying, I expect to learn nothing. I expect to not grow. And if I disagree with the pastor, the pastor's wrong because I thought about it for almost four seconds. That causes chaos. Why is that? Because the person who's determined to be angry every time he disagrees with something is ripe and primed to cause problems either by expecting to engage in lengthy debates or by murmuring and causing problems with others. Let me show you a second easy-to-understand text. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. One of the great advantages to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians is, is that they were all fairly new believers, and so he's very straightforward. He's not very nuanced. He's just direct. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 is a great example of this. This is just simple admonitions on how the sheep interact with the shepherds. First Thessalonians 5.12 But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Three simple ways to interact with church leaders. Know them. The English Standard Version translates this. Respect them. This is the idea of, of taking time. Regard them highly in love and live in peace with one another. This is straightforward. It's protective for the entire church. Know the hearts of your leaders. This helps you to not misjudge. Regard them highly in love. This guards your heart against the temptation to withdraw into even dislike or disgust. And live in peace with one another. Let the shepherds be about the business of teaching the flock, not the business of constantly knocking heads together or trying to solve conflicts like Susicus did in the church of Philippi. Let me do one more, a third easy to understand text. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. I like this text because it puts the benefit of a proper relationship to the shepherds, back onto the church member, that that you benefit. The writer shows the futility of being a difficult church member. Hebrews 13, verse 17, not hard to understand at all. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this will be unprofitable for you. This isn't difficult. The the leaders are giving an account for the souls that are in their charge. By the way, one of the reasons we believe in church membership, I need to know who I'm accountable for. And so you let them do this with joy, and that joy comes from submission. But this is so important. This is important for you. No church member, no Christian has ever created joy, ever created contentment, ever created a sense of satisfaction in his own life by being difficult or unsubmissive. The writer says it directly. This is unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable. This doesn't mean you aren't free to call attention to something that a leader ought to know, or or perhaps might be helpful to that leader, myself included. But we're to be wary of not causing chaos and unnecessary burdens. I think we could also put into this category the, the area of unmet expectations. Those are the things that can create chaos. Every church member has an idea of what a deacon ought to be. Every church member has an idea of what an elder ought to do and be and what what pastors ought to do and be. And all of us do our best to strive to adhere to the biblical definitions of those offices and those roles. But the nuances and the freedom to carry those duties out in various ways, they're wide, they're diverse, and, and trying to please everyone is an impossible task Instead, our goal is to be pleasing to the Lord. And if you succumb to the temptation of dwelling on unmet expectations that leads to dissatisfaction, that, that crosses a line very frequently into murmuring first to yourself and then to others. And, and you might say, oh, I, I don't think I would ever do that. I don't think it's that serious. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Listen, I've, I've been around long enough to know that that sort of chaos... Left unchecked can break the back of a local church if it goes unchecked. It causes the shame of church splits, some that are public and in the newspapers, of mass exoduses. It causes the shame of pastors having to resign or or being fired, of elders turning one another and turning against one another. And there can come a point of no return where the emotional and the relational fires in the church are out of control. Oh, but that would never happen here, said every church in which that's happened. Let me give you a tenth way to ruin the local church. And this one is slippery. This one is sly. Slowly disengage from the church. Slowly disengage from the church. Turn with me to another classic text. Hebrews chapter 10. Slowly disengaged from the church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Oh, this is a slippery slope. It doesn't hurt just you. It sets a poor example. And if enough people do it, it becomes the culture of the church. That is the slippery slope of becoming more and more disengaged. And I am speaking to leaders as well as to members. It usually starts slowly. It starts with serving And then serving with less than a whole heart, and then working your way out of serving. Serving in the church is such a great accountability because others are counting on you. And and then it moves on to the frequency of gathering together. You, You miss a Sunday every once in a while, then you miss a Sunday a month, and then two. And then you get to the point where your decision to gather with God's people happens when you wake up on Sunday morning. And this tendency, this slippery slope, this is like the bite of a cobra. The bite of a cobra has neurotoxic venom which inhibits the transmission of signals from the brain to the muscles and it causes a slow paralysis. And you don't know what's happening. I've seen it enough to know that this is a genuine danger. Instead, Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how they stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is an interesting phrase here. What is the day drawing near? That's the end of all things. That's the judgment of the lost, the rapture, and the return of Christ. All the things that are coming at the end. Today, the day which is drawing near, logically, is closer than it was last week, isn't it? And so we gather all the more as you see the day drawing near. We often say, live your life in the church. And according to Hebrews, this becomes more and more pressing with the passing of time. In fact, I can prove this to you. Let's just say, for instance, that we suddenly came into the knowledge that the rapture of the church was going to happen in a month. Don't quote me out of context that we're issuing the prophecy here. But if we came to the knowledge that the rapture of the church was happening 30 days from now, and if, we sent out a quick text to the whole church saying we were going to gather every single evening for preaching and singing and prayer and more preaching and singing. You would be here in droves. Everyone would be here. Everyone would be bringing friends and neighbors. That's the point of Hebrews 10.25. The day is drawing near. And listen, that was written 2,000 years ago. It's way nearer now. If a believer continues down that slippery slope, a a line inevitably gets crossed. And that is the line in your mind of viewing yourself and the church separately. And that is a spiritually dangerous place to be. A view of the church as being outside yourself with you as an outside observer. But the Bible says you are the church. Romans 12.5 says, We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another And before you know it, you become the judge and jury and now your mind wanders so easily to criticism, to all the things the church does wrong, to constantly finding fault and suddenly the church and her leaders can do nothing right. So what's the antidote to that venom? It is to be all in. To live your life in the church. To look at these glorious saints all around you saved by grace And just know that when all of us are glorified in our perfected resurrection selves, there's no one else you'd rather be with. Listen, why go to another church filled with sinners when you already have one right here? (laughs) You're not going to improve on that. Live your life in the church. Yes, the church will disappoint you. I will disappoint you as your pastor. The elders and staff pastors will disappoint you. Fellow church members will disappoint you. That's going to happen. But what makes the difference? The gospel makes the difference. The gospel makes the difference because we're gospel people saved by grace and we do our best when we live our lives saturated in the lives of other gospel people going arm in arm all the way to heaven together. Speaking of which, let me give you the 11th way to ruin the local church. This is related to the last point. Keep real relationships at arm's length. Keep real relationships at arm's length. And this is a real concern for me. I'm burdened by this because I've seen it happen. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans 12, I want to show you that the fellowship in the body is more than simply showing up to gather together and sing and hear preaching and then go home still personally disengaged. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9 forms the basis for our membership covenant here at Grace. We read some of it this morning when we took in new members. I I just want to point out to you how much of Romans 12 beginning of verse 9 is relational, implying real, deep, actual, lasting brotherly and sisterly relationships. Romans 12 verse 10 being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Verse 13 Contributing to the needs of the saints. Pursuing hospitality. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 16. Being of the same mind toward one another. Not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. Verse 18. If possible, so far it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. These are admonitions in the context of deep, abiding relationships where you're walking through junk together. You're walking through difficulties. Now you might say, and I've been told this by church members, but that's just not me. I'm a loner. I'm a private person. I like to stay to myself. Can I say this? We don't have a private faith. We have a personal faith, but it is not a private faith. When someone says, that's not me. I'm a loner. I'm a private person. I like to stay to myself. What's the common denominator in that answer? Me, 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 me. What causes that tendency to avoid deep, real relationships? Let me give you a few causes. A fear of being vulnerable. A fear of being vulnerable that the idea of expressing your weaknesses or your fears, or or worse, that someone will discover them by getting to know you. Or worst of all, someone might actually correct you and try to help you. It's a fear of being vulnerable. There may be a fear of change that you've gotten used to being primarily content with just yourself, and, and changing that is very difficult. One factor may be perfectionism, and that is a sin. The sin of perfectionism, that if I can't be 100% in control of how someone interacts with me or how a relationship goes, then I'm going to keep that relationship at arm's length, which pretty much means all of them. This is an attempt to control all variables in life. I must have everything my way. Only then will I be content, will I be happy. Instead of trusting the Lord with those variables that relationships in the church are messy, and not everybody's like you. And aren't you glad for that? If everybody was like you, we we would be boring, right? There might be the variable of self-importance. Self-importance, I can't be bothered with dealing with other people. I have my life set up exactly. I've scheduled my life down to every five minutes. No one has the right to interfere with that. Others might have the variable of seeing your spouse as being enough. Seeing your spouse as being enough, is that really fair for your spouse to bear the burden of being the only truly close relationship that you have? Marriage was never meant to be a wholesale substitute for the church. The two go hand in hand. Now you might ask, so if I'm if I'm a loner, if I, I really do want to keep relationships at arm's length, what does that have to do with the church as a whole? Why does that impact the church? That doesn't have anything to do, that didn't hurt anybody. Well, first of all, it impacts the church because there are others who need you. There are others who need you. By being alone, you're depriving others of what you have to offer them. There's a second reason this impacts the church. Our our relationships are with the great sanctifying factors in the church. It's one of the great sanctifying factors we have that we're mirrors for one another and the more mirrors there are reflecting uh, the, the glory of Christ and even reflecting our own sin back to each other, We need those mirrors. And so avoiding genuine relationships hampers the overall spiritual growth of the church. Look, we've all seen in the news uh, mega churches where lots and lots of really famous people that we know from other parts of the news are absolutely wicked to the core. And they all attend here and they all put on the show. And those churches are famous for having famous people in them. But they don't have real relationships. When a congressman who is wicked to the core attends church because a news team is going to be there showing how spiritual he is, there's no man in the church that comes out up to that guy and says, Glad to see you here, but you know your entire life is a fraud. Could we talk about that? Let me give you a 12th way to ruin the local church. And this one's easy to do complain about everything. Complain about everything that you do not prefer. Let me give you three easy steps to complain about everything you do not prefer in case you don't know how to do this. First, complain to yourself. Second, complain to your spouse. Third, complain to everyone else. And that's usually the order it goes in, right? The New Testament gives us a great wide latitude about how to do church under the umbrella of the non-negotiables such as preaching of the Word of God, singing, praying, the Lord's table, baptism, and so on. Everything else boils down to wisdom issues, even preferences. And and the church in which members or leaders for that matter become obsessed with getting their way on preference issues, we've lost our gospel focus and now we're more focused on pleasing ourselves. And boy, the list of preferences is exhaustive and exhausting. I've heard them all. I've gotten emails about them all music style children's ministry or to not have children's ministry meeting times color decor length of sermons location of bathrooms numbers of bathrooms i have gotten an email two pages long about bathrooms i'm in favor of them i don't know what else you want me to say all of those things are important but they fall into the realm of preference issues don't they I'd love to have sat in on a complaining session by a church member in the church of Smyrna where believers were dying for their faith and for their witness. Well, I just think that these chairs are not comfortable enough. You know I just got out of prison and I was beaten five times for my faith, right? Well, that may be so, but that last sermon on giving was just over the top. And you know the pastor was thrown into jail right after that sermon, right? Well, maybe it was God's punishment for that sermon, I don't know. No, they didn't have any of that. The church at Smyrna was commended by Jesus Christ for her faithfulness even unto death. And nobody complained about incidentals, I can guarantee it. Now, we can kind of joke about this because complaining about things we prefer to this point has not been the culture at Grace. And I'm so thankful for that. There's been an atmosphere of deference and love that is tremendous but the warning is this, when enough people begin to think that preference issues are worth making difficulties over, the church can develop a culture in which this is normal. It's not normal. The easiest way to do a self-corrective about what really matters and what doesn't is simply to think through Colossians one twenty-eight. is Christ being proclaimed and are Christ's people being admonished and taught to be complete, to be mature in Christ? Those are the things that matter. If those are happening, everything else is incidental. Everything else is. Let me give you one, way, one more way to ruin the local church. And this one really encompasses all of them. This is broader in scope. And that is to fail to actively seek personal maturity. Fail to actively seek personal maturity or, or sanctification. I, I know what it's like to see someone who has so turned into a complainer and so turned their hearts against the church, against the leaders. I, I, I know what that's like. I've, I've observed that. I was told once that the preaching here is too light and they can't learn anything. I, I don't know what to say to that. Grace Bible Church is like a buffet. You can take as little or as much as you want, but there's plenty of spiritual food. Here's the question. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? I've been in ministry long enough to see believers who have listened to thousands of sermons and yet their sanctification seems to wax and wane. Their progress in the faith seems almost imperceptible. It's like watching a slug go across the sidewalk. You're like, come on, you can do it. You can get there. I think the reason for that is a belief that passive listening is the singular event The singular agent for spiritual growth or that the acquisition of knowledge is the same as spiritual maturity, that the more you know, the more mature you are. Those those two are, are, are related, but they're not the same. We've already seen in James what the definition of spiritual maturity is hearing the Word of God and then what? Doing it. Now, many of you take notes during our preaching times. This is not a legalistic plug that only holy people take notes. Don't hold up your notebooks and say, Nanny, I'm one of them. But sometimes I've been asked, what's the purpose for taking notes? I think the best reason is to make a habit of going back through what you've heard and imprinting it more deeply on your mind immediately afterwards. Giving your mind and your heart time to apply what you've heard. That's the whole purpose of our sermon-based Bible studies, our small groups. But in reality, all of you can do this. Some of you are comfortable taking notes. Others of you are more built to go back and listen online once again. Whatever your method, it doesn't matter. Going back and rehearsing and reviewing in your mind and nailing those nails deeply, that's the key. That is the way to accelerate your own sanctification. And I've got news for you. If you haven't figured it out yet, I don't design sermons for you to get everything the first time through. It's not designed that way. The Word of God is too rich to try to oversimplify it. There isn't time for that. A simple practice to enhance your own growth significantly is to simply make review a part of your personal time with the Lord. That is a tremendous way to spend Mondays, nailing those nails deeply. And once a church as a whole, and I think we're headed there, once a church as a whole has grasped onto the vision that the culture here is to seek Christ to worship Christ, that He must become greater and I must become less and to be obedient to Him at all costs, to live a life in the church that is sacrificial, to live a life for the sake of the gospel, to live a life that is heavenly oriented, that's just counting down the days until Christ returns. When the church as a whole begins rolling that direction, who do you think God is going to send the lost to? He's going to send them to us. And that's what we want. That's what you want. That's what I want. So we know our duty as a church. It's spelled out most succinctly in Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4. And I just want to close with this. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, now we can come to the celebration banquet Friday. Thankful for what the Lord has done in the past year. Careful to be on our knees. Careful to be humble and expectant that He will do more as we do our part to be a church that's well-pleasing to Him. We've never had a year yet at Grace Bible Church that I've seen where the leaders have said, you know, I think that's good enough. We've never had that. And we fully expect that 2023 will be filled with even more blessings, more kindness from the Lord but only as we are humble before him amen let's do that together our father we thank you for the clear admonitions in scripture and the 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 admonition that the apostle peter gives that if we will humble ourselves now he will exalt us at the proper time lord that's our our prayer how we want to be like christ how we want to be a church that's pleasing to you we are very aware of the reality that the head of the church, Jesus Christ, walks to and fro among us. And He is evaluating our efforts, Lord, as a church body. And we, we're eager, Lord, to be found pleasing to Him. We're eager to be found faithful to Him. He's a gracious and kind head of the church. He knows our ways. He knows that we are fragile. He knows that we are sinful. But if we as a church will be unified as we've seen in so many texts, unified in mind, in spirit, in direction, in ministry. How glorious that is. I pray for every person hearing this, Lord, that their jobs outside of the home would simply be a means of doing the work of the ministry, first in the family and then in the church. I pray for the families represented in this church, for the marriages represented, that they would harmonize beautifully together in their home so as to be a strengthening factor in the church. And Lord, we would ask You very, very humbly to bless our time together coming up Friday evening and be pleased with our gratitude and our thankfulness. Oh, You've done so much. And yet with humility and with some trembling, we ask You to do more. We ask You to save souls this coming year. We ask You for many baptisms. We ask You for many to be discipled. We ask You, Lord, for You to do great things through us in ways we could not have possibly dreamed so that we would point all glory to our amazing, sovereign King of all the kings, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.